Hey, how yous doing? This is Kirk. Welcome to another episode of Delarious. And you may be hearing crickets in the background. And, you know, being from Maine now, uh, when the crickets start chirping, it means fall is approaching. At least that's what I've noticed. And it's a very zen sound. Very appropriate for this episode of the podcast featuring Dr. Jeff Greeson, otherwise known as Grease to me because he was one of my former college basketball teammates at Swarthmore College, but now Jeff is an assistant professor of psychology at Rowan University, also an adjunct assistant professor in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, and the director of the Mindfulness, Stress, and Health Lab. And this is a pretty cool conversation with Jeff. We're going to talk a lot about what it means to be mindful. Uh, He calls himself the professor of mindful eating. I call him the maestro of mindfulness. And uh, you're going to hear a lot from Jeff about reclaiming balance in your life, what it means to be mindful, how he talks about the future of healthcare is self-care. And we even get into some really cool stories back in the day from uh, playing basketball together at Swarthmore College. So hope you all enjoy this. Oh, and one more thing. Um, I'm going to start a new segment on the podcast. And if you listen all the way through, I'll play it at the end. And um, what we're gonna do is the creature feature. More to come after the show, but stick around because I think you might like it. And hope you enjoy the zen of these crickets as we head into this talk with Dr. Jeffrey Greeson, my brother from another mother, the Grease, Jeff Greeson. Can you hear me now? Oh my gosh. Green. Good to see you, man. <laughs> I mean, made my screen bigger. I had to get a little, you know, haircut going. I was about like this. You know? Well, dude, okay. First of all, I love that picture. Now, I, I always knew we were brothers from another mother, but that p- picture really like solidified the deal. <laughs> it's amazing. So, I was on candy. You always had the better uh, three point range, you know. I will give you, I will give you that one. Well, and the international play. The big question, Greece, is can you still dunk? I could dunk for quite a while, but um, um, if it's like a, a rim that's bent down a little, you know, maybe. But um, but actually, no, I really have not played in like 20 years. So really? some of it was time. Some of it was just injuries mounting up and not the, the prospect of another surgery and all that was, was just I, I couldn't, you know, imagine it. Um, so. But yeah, so not anymore, but you know, it lasted for a while, but um, my dad could dunk until he was 50, so I think I had it genetically. Wow. Yeah. Well, I I played until, uh, gosh, I think I was 40. I was in this men's league here in Maine, and uh, oh wow, I played the, one of, one of my, the, the, my teammate who really ran the team was the, was the uh, coach at Brunswick High, but he played at the University of Maine, he was a point guard. So and we had a we had a killer team. We won a bunch of championships, like four or five. Well, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but then you know I started to get the little nagging injuries too. You know, like broke a finger here. I had Achilles tendonitis. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and, you know, it was, it was always on a Sunday night and, um, inevitably every single week there'd be some kind of scuffle, you know, where dudes are just like getting angry and almost coming to blows. And I'm like, you know, I don't need this on a Sunday. Like I, I just want to be home watching football or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, you know? I, that's awesome. You played for so long. I mean, I, you know, in, in ways I miss it, but um, some of it was kind of just the getting older and more injury prone. But yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's easy for the tempers to flare. None of us are as good as we used to be, and everybody's out there to have fun. But also, there's kind of to prove a point, and I could do this. And I mean, yeah, it's hard for people to let go of that. So yeah. Well, there's still plenty to do to keep your body well during these times. So I do. I still do a lot of running um you know i run four or five miles every other day oh wow Um, do a lot of yoga doing doing a lot of uh burpees you know inspired by joe DeSanta in uh, the spartan races doing doing lots of burpees oh yeah yeah (laughs) no i mean yeah that's um all credit to you for keeping that up and just with the family and the girls and everything i mean it's you know i have no kids no excuses but just uh you know kind of let all that go Um, no excuses grease come on man it's not, yeah, the physical fitness has really fallen by the wayside. So I'm, I'm where I call myself, you know, I'm the professor of mindful eating. <laughs> People presume is always healthy, you know, so my social media posts when I'm posting, you know, my, I stopped in North Carolina on the way down here to my mom's in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina for some Smithfields barbecue. I oh. put a couple pictures up of the platter and the hush puppies and the barbecue pork. I'm like mindful eating. No, it doesn't look very healthy. Well, I mean, it's not only about being, it's about enjoying and savoring. Yes, it's nice if it's healthy, but that's one of those things with mindfulness is it doesn't just mean you're always relaxed. You're always healthier. You're always not stressed. Not necessarily. I mean, you can be mindful of, of all those things. That's, but, yeah. uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and you said it right, savoring, right? You got to have some joy. Um, yeah. Although I will say I've been trying to go, I've been trying to go with a lot more of a plant-based diet um i i haven't although last night i did grill some huge steaks uh <laughs> but but i I'm, I'm slowly moving in that direction and uh, the majority of my meals are are, are plant-based but um yeah you know just trying to trying to trying to stay healthy and you know keep it going i do feel i feel like the universe brought us together here for all this here jeff you know like we were talking about we had connected several months ago about uh trying to do this podcast and talk about mindfulness this was like pre-covid i think right and then i think it was yeah it was a few weeks i think it was maybe late january and a few weeks later we're all leaving school and you know no one knows what's going on but yeah yeah then you know everything um you know hit the fan and then covid happens and although and then i was like oh my gosh i gotta reach back out to jeff so funny you had it on your calendar oh it's been on there the whole time <laughs> oh it's like i was gonna say it's serendipity but then you wrote like, oh, it's just the perfect time to chat. You know, there's so much fear and stress and anxiety in the world. We've, we've all got it. Um, so, yeah, it's super. It's going to be this is going to be super fun to hear all about your your mindfulness journey uh, okay. and all that. But um, so, I mean, I know you're 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 a professor at various universities. Right. But Rowan is your sort of home base. And um, have, are you back to school? Are they opening? We start uh, two weeks from, from Tuesday, so we start September 1st. 
So fully, fully back, all students. Well, I mean, so some students are back. They had to make, you know, all the schools had to make these decisions, I think, a, a few weeks ago. Um, so I think they, you know, a limited number of students came back and, and they had to go through, you know, how many dorm rooms and how many students per dorm room, how many people per classroom and all that. So it's definitely limited capacity. But um, there are some classes that are going to be uh, in person. A lot of it is remote, some's hybrid. Uh, but then uh, Phil Murphy, the New Jersey governor, just made an executive order. Might have been earlier this week. It could have been maybe Monday. Um, Monday or Tuesday, and he said he is signing something that he wants to maximize in-person teaching, and you know, with masks and with the shields and so forth. So I think my class, uh, I'm teaching a PhD class in the, every fall, so it's only, I think, seven of us. Uh, so it's smaller, and we can spread out in a room, but, you know, not everyone wants to do it, and, and they're doing their clinical work in hospital settings, so they don't want to bring that on campus and so on. So it's, it's kind of a holy mess, but we're back to school September 1st um, with an increasing number of classes that are supposed to offer in person, including as the semester goes on. I think by the end of September, they want even more people back, but it all depends. You know, every every day, every week, um, the information's UNC, and it's gonna, the same thing's gonna happen everywhere. Yeah, I'd have to also think that your mindfulness lab is going to be uh, of, the of super importance to these students. Um, can you tell me a little more about that lab? And is it fairly? Is it a fairly unique program at universities, or uh, is this kind of your own uh, brainchild? Um, I first established the mindfulness lab at Duke, which was around two thousand, uh, probably six, and I was there for almost ten years. Um, so I first created the mindfulness lab there and, and had some funded research grants and mentors and students involved and running, you know, uh, studying this eight week mindfulness program that originated at UMass. And now it's been, you can learn to teach it and it's disseminated all over. So I was studying kind of outcomes of that program, collaborating with other people. Then uh, Johanna, uh, my wife, also a Swarthmore grad in my class. So yeah, how's she doing? Good. So she just got tenured at Penn. Amazing. A couple years ago, so she's in the School of Social Work, um, School of Social Policy and Practice, to be precise. Um, but she went to UNC, postdoc at Duke, could not get a um, professorship down there after a couple of years of trying. So got an offer at Penn, prestigious, you know, School of Social Work. So she took that, and I stayed down in North Carolina for a couple of years, um, just trying to wrap up these grants and everything. So then I left there in 20. 14. Um, moved back up to Philly. Uh, I also joined Penn, the Department of Psychiatry, for a couple of years. Recreated the mindfulness lab there. You know, got five grants. Was running those, hiring a couple of people, mentoring some students to go on to grad school. But then I sort of realized, uh, and now I'm at Rowan, which um, I'm about to start my fifth year there. So I started there in fall of 16. So now going into my fifth year. So it's the third place I've established this mindfulness lab, and we've really done similar work at all three places um, and kind of the themes of it are mindfulness and mental health, mindfulness and medicine, um, how mindfulness relates to the mind-body connection um, and how kind of learning to become more mindful and whether it's through mindful breathing, mindful eating, you know, mindfulness of emotion and how stress and emotion triggers our behavior in, in unhealthy ways. But if we're more aware of that, we can kind of like you were saying in the intro, we can eat differently, we can think a little differently monitor our emotions more carefully, become aware of how we 
react to stress and are we reacting to stress or are we responding a little more wisely and consciously versus automatically and kind of unconsciously so we you can study all that stuff right and you can use questionnaires or look at neurotransmitters or the brain or whatever so that's been a constant across all three places um the difference at, at rowan is the mindfulness lab there the reason i joined there is they started a new phd program in clinical psychology which is what i do and within clinical psychology there's sort of a specialty of health psychology so bringing mental health and physical health together um, so that's sort of a specialty focus of the phd program at rowan which is really the impetus for why i wanted to join there and be part of kind of creating that launching that so we've done that into our fifth year now um, and the lab more so at Rowan is more student-centered, whereas at Penn and Duke, those were both in medical schools. Uh, so it was more hiring people, getting the multi-million dollar grants and all that. Rowan, it's more student-centered. So yes, we want the grants and everything, but it's more because they're thinking about maybe a research career and how do you get them more involved versus kind of hiring people that they're research specialists. So the themes have been the same across the three schools. Um, but now it's a lot more student center. Now with the COVID thing, there is no mindfulness lab. We, we, we got kicked off of campus the second week of March and now it's gonna be September and we still can't go back in the lab. So we're analyzing data and writing and teaching them how to publish articles and everything, which is part of professionalism and you know sharing what you find with the scientific world and through social media. So we've been trying to focus on that this summer. So is the lab an actual physical space where students come yes. and and they and there are uh, staff there to kind of uh, work with them. Do, do you run like meditation uh, guided meditations or different sort of workshops on you know stress reduction, all that? Yes, good question. So that's an important thing to clarify. And I, I didn't really when someone said it's a lab, I'm thinking test tubes and centrifuges and you know like a biology lab. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit like that. It is a physical space. There's actually three faculty, uh, myself and two colleagues that sort of share a, a research suite, I guess. So we have a common room with a kind of conference table projector, and then we each have our own sort of smaller offices or rooms where we have our lab equipment. So I have an EEG, you know, to look at um, brain activity. We have these physiological sensors for blood pressure, heart rate, breathing, sort of your... Um, sweatiness of these are all signs of kind of stressed or relaxed states brain waves that controls the body systems when you're under stress or you're more relaxed so you can kind of compare and contrast when you um, hook people up to this stuff whether they're kind of thinking back to a time that made them stressed or anxious or angry and of course you know the signals are really going off and, and you can see the increase in stress response then you can ha and you can have them do cognitive tests like memory tests or paying attention or executive function. That's not as stressful as thinking back to a time when you were really stressed, for, for instance. But then you can also have them do different types of meditation, you know, mindful breathing or a body scan or, or even just kind of sitting quietly. And that's one of these things in the uh, kind of the field of mindfulness that's emerging now is what are the signatures of mindfulness, you know, and it's tough to figure out because it's like all of our signature. It's no one thing, you know, it can be a little different for everyone. And there's different qualities of mindfulness, attention, emotional regulation, you know, sensory experience and so forth, in, internal perception as well as external. So you're trying to look for signatures of mindfulness with all with this equipment. So the students can learn that. The universities usually provide you with startup funds to buy this equipment. And then you're kind of getting the students involved with how to learn and operate this stuff. 
so that they can help us as a faculty, but we're helping them learn to do science and it's sort of a team science approach. And then you have grad students and undergrads and there's sort of a kind of um, hierarchical mentorship model that goes on. That's so cool. Um, it must be just like super exciting to go to work every day. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, um, challenging and exciting. And right now, I mean, this is a aberrant time. You know, nobody can go in right now because if you're supposed to stay the six feet apart and all that and you're in a small room with several people for a lab meeting or to run these studies right now we can't do them but this is you know knock on wood hopefully temporary yeah well you were talking i mean i was i'm going to take a a little bit of a step back because you were talking about mindfulness being multifaceted right and when i think of mindfulness or you know when people in general think of mindfulness i think a lot of times they immediately go to meditation and you know I, I was actually talking with a a colleague um the other day um emily if you're listening this is our conversation <laughs> but we were she was saying she was talking with her friends about like what is mindfulness you know is it being aware of the present moment is it taking 10 minutes out of your day to meditate is it uh being aware of your emotions in that uh setting where you're stressed and then she said there's so many different things that it could be. My mind just keeps going in circles and now all of a sudden I'm not being mindful. <laughs> so it's like, what, how, do yeah. you kinda, how do you kind of break it down and, and think of like what exactly is mindfulness and how can, how can I or people really focus on it in our daily lives? Yeah, so was it Emily you said? I mean, I think she's onto something there. I think any of us that, uh, you know, want to learn meditation, try it out persist with it over time, um, try and if we kind of get into it, share it with or explain it to other people like my students and I, for example, or when I was learning it from, you know, my teachers you know, back in the kind of end of Swarthmore days and going forward. It's- Wait, hold up. Same, you, were, yeah. you were learning this from teachers at Swarthmore? Because I- Not teachers at Swarthmore, but I, so Johanna got me this book at winter break our senior year. And so that was the first book on mindfulness that I ever got and I just remember being at home in Ohio kind of reading it in late at night it? I think I, it, it was called um wherever you go there you are oh um, yeah I know that. And that green kind of green book and it was what drew me to it is, and it's sort of like it's all the context so I'd never heard of this though I never heard of mindfulness or meditation or any of that and we weren't even together at the time we were with other people you know going into that break then we break up with those people and of course we get together that spring and the rest is history but she's the one who first gave me this book about mindfulness and I remember reading it and just it's caught in the subtitle is um, mindfulness meditation in everyday life and so it's very accessible it's like one or two page chapters and it's just all these everyday examples about you know talking about seeing your pictures in nature rowing along or walking along or engaged in your senses and then one of his later books is even called coming to our senses you know literally paying attention to our senses because that's a different mode of mind than like Emily was saying, being wrapped up in your worry and hurry and you kind of lose, it's easy to become very mindless versus in other you know, nature or other settings or it's practicing this in the context of school or work or sports. We have to have a more deliberate practice. It can be a little easier out in nature. There's just not as many distractions to carry us away. But we all have the natural ability to be mindful. That's one of the points the book makes. With practice, that innate ability grows stronger that's the role of these apps or these mindfulness courses or programs, again, for college students or employees or, or medical patients or what have you. 
Um, and so that's how we all kind of have some amount of mindfulness already. It's like height, you know, we're all different heights or we all have different eye color. We all have some amount of mindfulness, the ability to be mindful, attentive, aware, non-reactive, compassionate, naturally. But we differ in it. But whatever we have, if we make an effort to learn more, practice, whatever we have can grow stronger. And that's just an important thing to realize coming into this because um, it does take some persistence and it is frustrating and it does get complicated with all the terminology. It makes a simple thing very kind of confusing and complicated. But if you do stick with it, there's ties into mental health and quality of life and what you're noticing in your life and the richness of your life and how kind of in control you feel versus life happening to you. Well, how do I happen to life? You know, that has those core qualities of mindfulness have a lot to do with that. That is, that's amazing. Um, first of all, how trippy is it that uh, your wife, Johanna, gave you that book and like started you on this path to where you are today? That, that's amazing. That is so cool. So wait, and, and why, what was the reason why she gave, why did she give you this book? In the first she book? gave me two things that Christmas. And again, you know, we were in one class together that fall, developmental psych, right? And I think, um, you know, I thought she was attractive. So I had to get in her small working group, you know, to make sure we had extra, you know, extracurricular time together. Um, but she sent me two things that Christmas. One of them was like a squeaky basketball. And, you know, we're playing basketball, right? It's the fall. So she knew I played basketball. I'm running off from class to practice. So she sends me a squeezy, like squeaky toy, basketball toy for our dog. And then the other thing was a book about mindfulness. Now, the, the basketball thing for the dog, that, that's a no-brainer. That's a slam dunk. The book about mindfulness, I've asked her and I tried to concoct some elaborate story about how she knew me before I knew myself and, and all that. And she just said she liked the cover and she just picked that one, you know, off the shelf or something. That's hysterical. Yeah, and I don't have it here at my mom's. But on the inside cover, this is where it got, you know, really inspiring was she kind of drew like, you know, hope this adds to mindfulness in each of your days. And there was kind of a quasi heart, you know, symbol in there, but it wasn't like a completed heart, you know, we had to see if it was going to come, come together. <laughs> it was kind of suggestive. Yeah, but, so I don't know how she knew I would be into that, but I, you know, it was kind of going into last semester, real stress, you know, basketball. I remember coming to talk to you about, do I stick with the team or, That's right. or whatever. So um, jobs and just kind of questioning medicine or psychology or the mind-body connection, what getting to know her, basketball's ending, you know, injuries, it's just a mess, you know. So that kind of helped bring clarity to all that at the time. And it was just a perspective shift, you know. It was a way of, um, can we kind of say mindfulness? There's a toolbox metaphor. Let me reach in my toolbox and grab out some mindfulness when I need it. That's fine. Help me fall asleep. Help me calm down and relax. That's fine. I think the transformative potential of it uh, lies in, you know, mindfulness as a, as a way of seeing or a way of being, you know, even with the capital W way, but it, it can also just be a way of being a way of seeing, you know, can I see things through this lens of mindfulness, life, live, living it in the present moment, moment by moment. Yes, we plan, we have to plan for the future and stuff and learn from the past. But a lot of the time they've done these national surveys and, one of them was called, I think, through Harvard, Dan Gilbert and colleagues, uh, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Well, guess why? <laughs> we're doing this right now. But if we're thinking about the work I didn't get done today or I promised them this uh, this afternoon and I got to get to it when we're done, well, then we're not fully here right now. We're not getting the most out of this. We're being impinged upon by this rumination of the past or anxiety about the future. That is what creates stress, usually not what we're dealing with 
right in the present moment, particularly if it's time when we're enjoying a meal or out in nature or with our friends or in therapy or in class. We don't want to be pulled in a million different directions because that takes away from our experience in the here and now. Mm. Yeah, the, um, I mean, I suffer every day from the uh, ruminations of the past and the anxiety of, of the future. And I, you know, you, you came into mindfulness uh, probably about 20 years before I did Greece because I, the, um, you know, I, I've started meditating and breathing and I want to talk about breath work in a, in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Cool mm-hmm. But, um, you know, my, my journey there started really because I, uh, I had a panic attack at a, uh, a conference where I was speaking and I think a lot of it was in alcohol induced from the night before, you know, like, um, and, and sleep deprived and then sort of a session first thing in the morning. But, um, you know, sort of sitting in a room and thinking about the past and worrying about what I'm going to say and, you know, and then sort of all of this stress just sort of hit at once. And then, um, so I thought there's gotta be a way out of this to, and, and, um, I, you know, started kind of reading up on ways to, you know, alleviate that kind of stress. And that's where I got into the meditation, which then I started using one of those apps. You had just sent um, that uh, resource from mindful.org with the top five apps and Insight Timer was the number one. That's the one I use pretty regularly. You know, I've got all my favorites on there. There's a few, you know, sort of key uh, instructors that I really love and um, some really different types of meditations. You know, one's called the mountain meditation where you like, you kind of picture yourself as a mountain and all the weather and the seasons kind of coming and going. And I think that's almost like, you know, that particular meditation, um, the mountain really seems to hit at the heart of uh, the sort of being in the present or the mindful moment, right? So you have all this sort of happening around you and you are just, you're you're there sort of seeing it happen but you are still that steady mountain that's going to weather anything and everything that comes through your way each day yeah exactly yeah i know that that one i've i really enjoy and appreciate that one too i think that's one um because of the imagery and the symbolism and the felt sense of those mountain-like qualities of, of feeling grounded you know you plant your feet and you can feel yourself sitting there or whatever and, you, and your body actually feels grounded and centered and balanced and attentive and kind of an abiding sense of awareness of just whatever's around yet I'm stable and I'm centered and I'm grounded and I can just witness all of that as a mountain would with the weather and, and but if we pay attention to it we can actually feel that we don't have to do anything special. We already have all those qualities, but what we do need to do is <laughs> become mindful or pay attention to those qualities because it's not some magical state, but what it does take is, I've heard one translation of the word mindfulness is to remember. That's what's not easy, right. is to remember to do that, and that's where the daily practice comes in with yoga or meditation or whatever is, it's kind of like, you know, shooting, you know, if, um, if we don't practice, how are we supposed to get a better shot? And it's the same thing with mindfulness practice. You know, we get good at what we practice. So if we don't practice this stuff, how are we supposed to get any better at it? On the other hand, if you do spend some time practicing it, those qualities of balance, stability, perspective taking, um, and so on, feeling kind of a, a sense of equanimity, not having to react to every little storm that 
comes up or moves past, you know, that stuff's impermanent. It can be upsetting. And that's part of the mindfulness too, is we often say, you know, mindfulness isn't relaxation spelled differently. You know, John Kabat-Zinn likes to say, because if some people, oh, I've tried meditating and, you know, I can't relax. I was really upset and my mind was, that, but that's important to notice. And that's the kind of, if you can notice that, and that's kind of ties into the panic attack thing. Have you um, seen Dan Harris's work, the ABC yeah. News Anchor, right? And he has his book out at 10% Happier. It's very good. He's, he's very attuned to all this and very forthcoming and, um, you know, just kind of even-handed, cynical in the beginning, but he sort of talks about how he changed over time through his own practice. And now he has that 10% Happier app. And it's a good one. There's some education on there. There's practices, but it's very kind of practical and real world. So I think that's what is valuable to people that you don't want to tell oh, you're going to relax every time you do this, or you're going to be a lot less stressed and make your anxiety disappear. You're going to become some other person coming into it with expectations like that is we're kind of attached to getting those types of outcomes. And then when they don't happen, or are we going to continue doing it or not continue? We're going to stop doing it. You know, it's like exercising, but you don't change your eating habits and you exercise more and you still gain weight because you're rewarding yourself with a, shake or a smoothie after everywhere and you're gaining weight working out no they are they are but it's the same with mindfulness you know and i've had definitely times and i don't know if you've noticed this where we're practicing i went on a retreat last summer actually at insight meditation society and in barry massachusetts and um i thought i went into it you know not expecting much kind of just remembering what my teachers and mentors you know don't have high expectations or whatever but i go to it it was very difficult and i think it was only a week you know seven days or seven, six nights or something so it wasn't that long but you can't talk to each other that's long to not talk no to anybody TV. six days no tv no cell phone no oh. computers it's all vegetarian so you'd like that because it's plant-based but no meat so for me i i you know went to like not in and out burger that's a west coast thing but i, <laughs> I went to smash burger or whatever like the <laughs> night before the get my last dose of protein but it's like you're changing just out in nature with kind of nothing around that you're used to can't talk to your spouse or your kids or whatever so it was very challenging um and i thought i went into it you know like open and receptive and not expecting too much you know letting whatever was going to unfold but then i you know get back from it and i'm telling my kind of close colleague jeff brantley and his wife mary at duke i saw them in north carolina uh, last summer we'll try and catch them during summer vacation on the beach and they were saying basically that um, it sounded like in describing the struggles I had with it, uh, that I had, they were like, well, that's an example of the tyranny of your own mind that I kind of even unwittingly, you know, wanted it to turn out a certain way. And I was attached to that, even though kind of, I don't know, consciously, or I didn't think I was, but they could just hear it as I described it to them, how frustrating it was. And I couldn't wait for it to be over. Dan Harris talks about, but they're like, you got to go again because that stuff evolves. That's kind of normal at first. That's the first time I had done one that long, done like two or three day ones. But a week, that's starting to get to be pretty long. That's long. It's, it's difficult. And I think if uh, people talk about in terms of, uh, you know, stress or anxiety or it was not a traumatic life experience. I'm not drawing that analogy, but going through something stressful, even traumatic, it, a lot of the way that affects us, if we can get something out of it, is there some way we're growing through that experience, getting something out of it, something purposeful that we can carry forward, then you can take those things and actually mean something versus just kind of gritting and bearing it at the time and you're paying a lot of money for it and all that. 
that's what I was more latched on to that I was like, really? And you have these consultations like midway through the week. And I'm like, I'm getting real frustrated. I thought I would be learning more than this. That was my tyranny of mine that I would be yeah. learning more than I knew coming into it, which who wouldn't expect that you're paying a lot of money. You're going to be there for a week. I was meditating for 20 years. I thought I would kind of learn something I didn't know already. To me, that's not an unrealistic expectation. But I was so tightly attached to it that when I consulted with this guy midway through and he was like, I said, is really, you know, you just put the next foot and take the next step when you're getting all pissed off or whatever, or take the next breath. Mm -hmm. And dude, when I got the mm -hmm in response to that, I was ready to go get my keys and, you know, head out to the car and go home. <laughs> I didn't, but like those thoughts came through my mind. Like, this is, you know, this is not worth it. This is a scam. But it all, coming back to the perspective, it all depends on how you look at it and how you kind of accommodate that kind of experience and learning. And then there's different levels to this. That was at the level of the retreat, and I got pissed off relative to the money and what I thought I was learning or not. The higher level stuff is now, hang on a second. What does that tell me about my own expectations in my own mind about wanting certain things to happen when they don't? That was my stress signature. I get all pissed off and I'm ready to leave and it's not worth it and all that. And I totally reacted to that versus could I just see that and just come back to whatever practice we were doing like they told me, which I thought was baloney, but at each individual moment. And that's the practice. You notice stuff like that happening, yeah, but you can be mindful of being pissed off or disappointed or afraid or sad or lonely or isolated or not adequate enough. Okay, but that doesn't, it's like the mountain thing. Those are the weather patterns. They are there. We can ignore them and wish they weren't there. But if they are there, how can we observe that stuff and kind of let it in without letting it totally define us? And that's where I have a long way to go. Yeah, well, I mean, it's good to hear that you as the maestro of mindfulness, which I'll call you, uh, still gets pissed off. Makes me feel better about my daily rants and, uh, you know, my anger and frustrations and just about everything in my life. So that's good to hear. If, if you've been yeah. meditating for 20 years, I think the point you made about being attached to an outcome is so common, right, for all of us for so many different situations instead of just being in the moment and enjoying the process and the journey and, you know, taking each result as it comes and then learning from it and moving on. It's the same thing as like, you know, Adrian, my wife with her basketball team, right. she the same thing to her team. Like don't be attached to the outcome, to the, to the win or loss. You know, it's, it's be attached to being in the moment with each other and trying to perform as best as you can in that moment. And then, it, and then it comes together which has worked for her because she's been to two national championships in a row. So I know that's why this spring was so frustrating because I think both, you know, Swarthmore and Bowden had a chance to, you know, make the final four of the finals again. Unbelievable. Can we just like take a pause and talk about Swarthmore basketball for a second? Cause when we were there, I know uh, it was terrible. so fun. I mean, we've been to a lot of the games, you know, went to the final four last year in the finals, um, went to a bunch of several of the games this year. I knew one of the seniors on the women's team, uh, Elizabeth Stiles, the point guard, so it was kind of fun to see her and watch the women a few times, watch the guys, you know, Adrian's doing so, you know, excellently well up there. And then just the bottom falls out. You know, we had tickets to that second round playoff game at, at SWAT. And, you know, next Monday we're all leaving school. Yeah. And everything's canceled. Oh, it was unreal. Now, I mean, you've seen, I've seen a few of the men's games on online. Oh yeah. 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 You've seen a lot, but like, 
I'm, you know, I wonder, obviously they were much more talented than we were. Um, but it seems like coach Landry has this very meticulous system with his players that they just completely buy into everyone has their role. They know their spots. They know every decision that's going to, to happen with, you know, creativity, but it seems like that is the process that is the sort of key to their success. I mean, is that what you see too? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we've probably read these Phil Jackson books, 11 Rings and uh, Sacred Hoops and all that. And, and I'm not saying, you know, Swarthmore has Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal or Michael Jordan. But I think his point with that is there were other coaches that had those teams with the same talent and they weren't winning the three championships in a row or whatever. And I think there's somewhat of an analogy to Swarthmore these last several years. Is, is the talent better now than when we were there? Yes, it is. You can just see it, you know, on the floor. They're bigger, they're faster, they're better shooters. Um, you were better than us. <laughs> depending <laughs> on the year, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I give them all that. But I think in addition to that is where the coaching comes in, the system that's put in place, the buy-in, um, attention to detail, role clarification, and all that stuff. And I, and I think um, you can just see the it kind of exudes that culture. How excited is the bench when something good happens? Is everyone kind of sitting there like giving it a golf clap? No, they're all – because we sat right behind the bench many times. And I saw. I saw your posters. Yeah, we have the, the Coach K <laughs> number one, the real Coach <laughs> K or whatever. <laughs> That's well, coming from a good guy, you know. So, you know, I didn't write that lightly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think they're yeah, it's the talent, but also um the the culture and the kind of roles and the buy-in and, and all those things. Yeah. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about growing up and your path to where you got because it seems like I was wondering before talking with you, like where did all this interest in mindfulness begin? And now I know it was your sage wife who really started you on the journey. But I was wondering when you were a little kid running around in Miami, Ohio, right? It was Miami, Ohio where you grew up? Yeah, Miami of Ohio. That's where my dad taught. Um, Oxford, Ohio, the small Oxford, town. That's where, yeah. that's where we grew up. Um, but yeah, what were you like? I mean, like, did you ever think of this kind of path when you were a kid? Because you were, were, you were primarily, I knew you were psych major at SWAT, right? But were you med? Were you I thinking mean, I was pre-med. Yeah. I was always, you know, interested in health um sort of health and and medicine the the body you know how this stuff works and it was only later I mean I think I was a psych major at Swarthmore because we liked Alan Schneider and all that he'd come watch our practices through the bleachers yeah you can see him like (laughs) under there but I'm still in touch with him so he was a key mentor and I just think I was drawn to psychology um in addition to the pre-med biochemistry and all that stuff and then realizing wait a second you know you're in different classes different semesters you put all your books you know up on the shelf and they all seem separate but in reality I think kind of the the psychology and the mind and and the body and health well what unites those two is the brain you know the mind brain body behavior and health you know so it's really all kind of a continuum but the way we learn those things it's not taught in a continuum it's taught in kind of these separate silos so as a kid, I just remember being more kind of interested or curious about health and kind of medicine and healthcare and, you know, wanting to be a physician doctor. Except for all those fast food burgers you were eating, Jeff. Oh, I, you definitely had a lot of the, maybe the origin of the mindful eating, you know, came in those early years when Oxford got its first McDonald's, you know, that was like, they were like a quarter back then in like 84, you know, but 
yeah. Um, so I never was really interested in psychology or meditation or any of that stuff until Swarthmore, even a little bit toward the, the latter, you know, last couple of years. In particular. Yeah. After graduation, uh, I spent four years working at Jefferson, um, Thomas oh, Jefferson right. University and Jefferson Hospital. So I was a research assistant and I had two roles there. Uh, I kind of did three things, you know, so part of me, I worked with Dr. George Brainerd, who teaches neuroscience to the first year medical students. He still does. He's kind of a stalwart there. Um, so I helped him with his light research lab. So light and melatonin and health and biological rhythms. And so basic neuroscience, you know, right? Then they also created a center for integrative medicine. One of the main foundations of which is mindfulness and meditation and yoga and healthy lifestyle and eating and so forth. So I was kind of a research assistant for the new center for integrative medicine, including for the mindfulness program. So we're collecting data and writing papers and stuff, while I'm also spending the other half of my time in the neuroscience lab, taking, you know, processing blood samples and looking at melatonin and the effect of light on pineal gland and biological rhythms. And then I, the third thing I did while I was there was I also did a master's in biochemistry, which I bombed in at Swarthmore. And, you know, I can blame it on basketball and traveling or all that stuff, or I wasn't the sharpest, you know, tool in the shed. But um, I did very well, and I think I got all A's and maybe like one B plus or one B in, in three years. And so I did that, but I knew I liked science. You can use that as a stepping stone to med school if you don't have the best grades in undergrad, you know, so it was kind of, I did it with that, but as I was in the milieu of integrative medicine and basic science, I thought, well, I think what I really want to do is, yeah, I want to do something where I can learn to see patients, but it doesn't have to be medicine. It could be maybe psychology, but but working with people with medical conditions well there's this whole area of health psychology so that's kind of why what i ended up doing and i've just found that having the masters in a basic science like biochemistry is not that you tell everybody about moving electrons and stuff in your therapy sessions but where it does help is people's motivation to pursue this stuff whether it's you know there's a science of psychotherapy including a neuroscience there's a science of mindfulness including neuroscience and neurotransmitters and genes and all this stuff be able to translate that and talk about that with everyday people that are coming in for therapy or they have cancer and they're anxious or whatever. And you're teaching on mind body skills, like in the context of psychotherapy, a little imagery or meditation or hypnosis. And you can not overwhelm them with it, but explain that, you know, through kind of using your mind of attention, emotion, and so forth, the senses you're attuned to that comes through your brain that innervates all these body systems you have all the way down to the immune system and, and gene expression changes. And therefore, the stuff can affect your health. And there's lots of work on this. It doesn't mean that it will, but it plausibly could. It really motivates people to kind of, you know, some people say the future of healthcare is self-care. Yes, we want to go to the doctors and have them help us out if we have cancer or chronic pain or whatever it is, a heart attack or something. But there's also a lot of stuff we can do. And I think the mind-body things like mindfulness or yoga or whatever, that's something, you know, we can do. But where's a center where we can go where all the people that work there see it that way more holistically instead of going here for this and there for that and here for your therapy and your acupuncture over here, that's disintegrated. It's much better if it's integrated. So integrated medicine or integrated yeah. medicine. Cool. Um, I want to, I wanted to spend a few minutes on breath work. Yeah. Because, um, I think for me, like more than anything I've done in the sort of mindfulness realm, the breath work has been the most impactful. And so like I do various kinds of breath work, right? Like the triangle breath and the box breath and 
Mm. This huge Wim Hoffer. I don't know if you know who Wim Hof is, but mm-hmm. um, oh, dude, you got look look him up and start doing some Wim Hof breathing. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So oh. it, it's um, it's four sets of thirty deep breaths in a row, very quickly, mm. and then you let out the thirtieth breath and you sit for as long as you can without taking another breath. Um, oh wow! Huh, huh. You can usually last several minutes, and then once you get the the sort of instinct again to, to breathe you take one deep inhalation you hold it for 15 seconds and then you let it out and that's one set and you do that four oh, times in a row and man i have some mystical experiences doing that i'll tell you i would highly recommend wim Hof for you dude bring that to the mindfulness lab yeah because we do um and well that's interesting so yeah I, I will um if you could like give me the spelling or whatever i i will do that um, because we do even remotely try and start every meeting with, you know, five or 10 minute meditation practice, but it's easy to get into a rut. The app stuff is good, but it's pretty entry level. It's, it's pretty basic. It can be repetitive and there's, you know, usefulness to that, but I also do like kind of broadening out and trying things that, you know, we haven't done before. So it would be interesting to try some of the, and I can try it first and then maybe share it with them. Um, but I, I absolutely agree that uh, I think it's especially in the yoga traditions and um, uh, Dr. Um, Vijayendra Pratap uh, has a store on South Street in Philly, uh, Garland of Letters, where he teaches yoga and has other teachers. But he also teaches medical students at Jefferson. And I met him way back when I'm still in touch with them, too. They have an annual conference. But I remember him teaching the medical students about pranayama and different um, styles of breathing and the kind of autonomic physiology of that. And that's all on just kind of the med school, what they're learning, you know, anatomy, physiology, the nervous system. There's another level to all that, though, which I, I, it's not only at that level. I think what Dr. Posner and you're saying and, and Dr. Pratap is saying is there's many levels to this. And sometimes, depending on what people are looking for, they may get to a level or not. Sometimes it may be a surprise they notice stuff like this, but there's definitely that you know, kind of more, um, whatever, enlightened spiritual, uh, door, it's kind of to another realm that, you know, yeah. you may not know is there, but there's definitely something to that through breath work and these yeah. types. Of- but even not even, I mean, that's sort of on the extreme, but doing the regular breath work like that, like the Wim Hof or just throughout my day, even in meetings or whatnot, I'll do the, like a, like a triangle breath, like four seconds in four seconds right. out hold for four or like the box you know in for four hold for four out for four hold for four and that just doing that kind of breath work just uh seems to have this very calming effect on my mind and body where i can even as especially in stressful situations like i've started doing it like i present a lot you know at conferences or whatnot i start i always do it before a presentation or even during if someone else is talking just to slow myself down and another piece of the Wim Hof method though Greece is uh, cold therapy so cold showers oh uh, really oh, huh. have you heard of this like the sort of benefits of, of of cold showers for one or cold therapy I mean not you know not in any detail so no basically no I mean I've heard of it but I couldn't sit there and tell oh cold does x y and z no how do you like do you like a cold shower I mean, after mowing the lawn in the summer, yeah. <laughs> like I wouldn't, you know, in the winter take one or just if I, a normal day, take a cold one on purpose. Um, so that I know. 
Okay, we're gonna do after this podcast, man. I'm gonna send you this stuff. We're gonna I'm gonna get Take you our on. GoPro in there and we'll do an addendum. <laughs> I wanna do a little challenge, a little like week challenge of uh of of Wim Hof breathing in cold showers. That'd be cool. Um so I we were talking about COVID before and how everything yeah. got kind of um thrown on its head and and our conversation did. And so um, this is even more important now during this time because so many people are stressed or fearful, have anxiety, and we're sick, right? And so yeah. I, so you just sent me that note that I want to hear a little bit more about this app that y'all are running. Um, you notice I said y'all because I know you're running it with Duke folks. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's called Lift, and it's to help people. Um, who have gone through a, an illness uh, like COVID or others that can yeah. sort of help them uh, manage that stress and come back to, to health and wellness. Like, tell me more. Yeah, that's exactly what it's for. Um, and I think the website for it is uh, lift.duke.edu and it's an ongoing study. Um, I think it's the third, we've studied this in phases and it kind of took a while to get up to the version of the app that we have now. And then this current project funded by the national institutes of health is to try and optimize it and kind of get their feedback and try and optimize the dose. So it's not just a cookie cutter where it's like, here's one app for everybody. And we just assume that it works the same way for everyone. That's not realistic. So let's try to a little more customized, but that takes time. So the purpose of the app is um, in the field of critical care, critical care medicine, People that um, end up in the ICU and whether it's an accident or, um, you know, lung injury or lung disease or whatever, and there's kind of two modes. It can be elderly people, but also younger people, you know, depending on whether it's an end stage kind of breathing disease or, or an accident. So different kinds of people come in there. And it's actually a three site study. It's Duke, uh, University of Washington in Seattle and University of Colorado, Denver. So it's three sites demographically quite different. So the purpose of the app is people come into the ICU and what happens is the purpose, the purpose of the ICU is to save your life, you know, so everyone in there, that's their job. Not everyone's so lucky. Some people do pass and whether it's COVID or other accidents or, or injuries or illnesses, you know, not everyone's so fortunate to make it out. But if you do make it out, the definition of success is you survived, you know, like a cancer survivor, a heart attack survivor, or whatever, you know, you're a survivor of mental illness, you're an ICU survivor, you know, is kind of how we think about this. So, so hooray, you know, thank God, that's, that's a wonderful thing, because not everyone is so fortunate. The problem is, in terms of back to this health psychology or mind-body health, is guess what's done about the traumatic experience of being intubated and almost a near-death experience, or wondering if you're going to make it, uh, what about your loved ones? You've lost your job. And if you're hurt or in, can I come back to the job I had or not? You get out, not everything resolves. You've lost some functionality or whatever, not to mention the lingering anxiety or depression or distress or insomnia or pain. Guess what's done about that? A, a whole big helping and nothing. And that's a little bit exaggerated, not nothing literally at all, but there is no kind of standard um, protocol or whatever for kind of the lingering distress of having survived you know the icu for example now a four session mindfulness thing be a cure-all no however in this kind of four weeks that they do this they learn these basic mindfulness practices you know awareness of the breath like you were saying i don't think it's like the four seconds long in a box but it's kind of the same idea attention of the breath learn how to regulate it yourself you wander off you come back you know that's practicing the because they have all these worries about having gone through that's natural but you know 
recognize that and come back. Awareness of the body, what parts are injured or hurt or not functioning. Other parts are probably functioning quite well. You know, it's easy to forget that. Um, working on kind of senses or how do you fall asleep or not or, or whatever. So it's kind of four basic skills that they can learn. And, and we had done it phone-based. Now it's only app-based. So there's kind of some trust here that if it's customized enough that they'll actually do it, you know, with us not calling them or following up as much. So what you're looking for in scalability, you can sometimes lose in um, personal connections. That's the one potential drawback of large scale versus more personal work. But that's the idea of it. Um, we're studying that version of it now on that website and there's a little kind of infomercial about how the app works and what it's meant to, to help. But um, especially with all this stuff with COVID, it's kind of one big theme in mental health and whether it's older adults, younger adults and students or working adults is mental health conditions of, of lingering distress or anxiety or depression or PTSD. It's just often under-identified, under under-diagnosed, and therefore under-treated. And it's not that this app is to cure all those things, but it's more of a self-care thing. And if things are getting worse, obviously we refer them to a you know psychologist or something. But there's sometimes that middle ground of there's things we can do if the resources are provided to help care for ourselves while also we're being taken care of others. So that's basically the idea. Hmm. That's so cool. It seems like it's gonna help a ton of people. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, so, and what about just for like advice for your everyday person who is dealing with all this shit right now and just stressed and afraid of what's going to happen? Um, some like, what are some kind of thoughts like that you might give them or us, any of us, uh, like on a daily basis? What can I do? just in within the flow of my day to uh to be more mindful yeah i mean the the number one thing i think of is is especially amplified in a time like this you know we're, we're, we're doing all these things and then there's even the irony of we're at home doing all these things but essentially we're kind of doing 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 and whether it's kids doing their school work or getting ready for school or or um, workers working from home or, you know, we're missing vacation. So we're probably filling that time in doing more stuff. That's kind of all this doing coupled with <laughs> if we pay attention to where our mind's at, where we're doing all that stuff, some of it's focused on what we're doing at the time. But also if we note, probably a lot of it is worrying about what could happen or thinking back to the regrets on that. So that is kind of a recipe for <laughs> high anxiety, high stress and all that somewhat rooted in, we're not fully there. And even if we are fully there, we're kind of just so busy trying to do stuff and make the most of our time that it becomes very imbalanced. And the role of practicing a little mindfulness every day, and it doesn't really what form you do it in. You could eat a meal or a snack mindfully. You could take a walk mindfully. You could pet your pet mindfully. You could have a conversation with someone mindfully. And basically all this means is whichever of those things you're doing, you're just doing that. You're not doing that and on the phone and watching TV and driving somewhere. It's more like, I'm just doing that. I'm just really being mindful and immersed in doing that. And therefore you are really um, fully living in that moment. And whether it's something uh, you're doing individually or something with another person. And I think of all sorts of extensions of this within the family, parenting, friends, teachers and students, therapists and clients, or doctors and patients, coworkers. It's not only stuff we're doing for ourselves. There's an interpersonal mindfulness with this too. But that's something I think we can all do is just pick something that we feel like we might have lost that we can recover um, 
in our daily routine, you were kind of mentioning the shower thing. Now, it might not be the best idea to do with the cold shower technique, but but it could oh, be. Yeah. Wait, hold on a second. What are you saying? It might not be the best thing to take. That's <laughs> it for you. It, it actually could because um, you I like, know I like you're already coming around on it. You're gonna try it. Yeah, but but I mean that's part of the perspective shift we're saying is you know to kind of oh my I'm judging all this stuff before I even do it. That's part of being mindful. Mindful. Right. Mindfulness is about um, what's the quote uh, Lao Tzu? Um, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, and the experts there are few. If we think I'm a psychologist, I meditated, I know everything about psychology and meditate. Well, if we think we know it all, then what room is there to learn more? None, because we're the expert. Beginner's mind, on the other hand, the cold shower thing, I don't know the cold shower. I've taken one once in a while, but not mindfully, not purposefully, not really noticing what is happening sensory, mentally. It's, so that would probably be totally different. And that's the kind of thing that everybody can do. On a, we all have that natural ability to be mindful. And whatever thing we pick, a cold shower, a, a warm bath, or time outside or time inside if we're writing someone or whatever, time with a pet or just enjoying a meal or whatever it is, to just kind of, we were saying savoring earlier, to simply savor the simplicity of doing that thing, doing it fully without the pressure to do other things or become anyone else or get any more done. And that's the stress relieving kind of power of mindfulness, I think, is we're really, whenever we're doing something mindfully, we're only doing that. There's no expectation for things to be some other better way. Because if there is, that's what stresses us out. That's what makes us more anxious. Things are this way. We wish they were this way. That's kind of proportional to our suffering. Hmm. If we can just actually be with things the way they are right now, even pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it doesn't matter. But if we can do that, that's when the kind of pressure and the stress, you know, the kind of weight of it can fall away. In the moment, it doesn't mean it will fall away for the rest of our life. Mindfulness is a moment by moment state or practice, really. And that's where the practice part comes in, doing something each day to kind of cultivate that experience. Yeah, it's like, it's super hard, you know, right now, especially for, as I see, for my kids' generation who are so, and even, uh, you know, colleagues of mine who are either sort of cuspers, which is a term I recently learned of, you know, Gen X to, or some not Gen X, we're Gen X. Right. Um, we don't have to deal, we do have to deal with this, but at a lesser level, because we remember life without the internet right. um, and phones. Right. But, you know, like the Gen Zs and millennials who uh, grew have grown up with uh, smartphones and, you know, the constant, ping of notifications everywhere surrounding them and so I feel like I worry about my own kids because you know they're experts at multitasking but I feel like they're they're not being very mindful in a lot of instances because they are doing so many things at once and they're they're taking in so much information at once they have all these notifications on um, even in the workday too, you know, with colleagues who are trying to focus and get some work done, but they're getting notifications from, you know, email or Slack or, you know, text messages, et cetera, and being, feeling the need just because of how they, ha how their daily lives are with social media and whatnot to respond to those or to look at those immediately. And it breaks your train of thought and breaks that, breaks that sort of concentration and mindful moment. So I mean, do you, do you, I mean, that must be something you're really focused on with the, with the students that you work with. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think people that there is there's been no other way. It's only been that way. We've seen it both ways, you know, so we can kind of compare and contrast. But when it's only been that way, I mean, just my kind of main thought around that um, that ties into sort of this time in society, what people are familiar with or not familiar with, and also tying this into kind of health and mental health and, and balance. I think a lot of times, you know, illness is due to imbalance. Health is due to things are being in balance. Mindfulness or mindlessness has a lot to do with things being out of balance or in balance. And when things are kind of mindless and we're just kind of our attention's going from thing to thing as pings and texts and all this stuff. And that's all we've really known. I'm not saying no kids can be mindful. I think they can, but they're just in a time and a time right now that it's very, is not conducive to that because there's always something largely on the phone pulling for their attention. So that's kind of what's regulating our attention. We're not doing it, even though we have the ability to do it. So I think one thing that can help with all this kids like them, growing adults or, or ourselves, is we know that if that seems really out of balance, if all that stuff's happening and there's no ill consequences, that's fine. You know, they're, they're well adjusted. They're managing their time. They're getting things done. They're like, okay, that's fine. Mental health is good. However, a lot of those things are on the rise, you know? So if that's the case, it may be better to do a little kind of some form of mindfulness practice. And again, I don't think it really matters what it is, but it's just reclaiming some of that balance of all the doing Well, we're human beings, you know, not human doings, even though we are spending most of our time doing stuff, but that's imbalanced. If there's potential consequences there are feeling really frazzled and really anxious a lot of times stressed out um, kind of doing a lot but not much is getting done sometimes and i have states like that too trying to come back to balancing that with doing whether it's some of the breathing stuff or some mindfulness practices of a meal or going outside or whatever and really just being attuned to that it can help rebalance it and even if that's a few minutes of a 24-hour day at least it's a little bit of balance and i think that's a time where through the noticing what things are like in that time versus all the other time, we got to be able to step back and see that, wow, you know, when I'm in this all the time, I'm kind of worried and hurried and I'm like, my blood pressure is going up or I'm gaining weight, I'm overeating in nature or kind of single tasking. It's annoying because we're not used to that. We don't really ever do that, especially younger people. However, if we do do that, you can compare and contrast what the difference is like and how that might relate to our sense of mental balance, our body, in those two different states, possible health consequences. So that's kind of how I look at it personally with my students and our research and even the role of this in the field as a whole. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like the more people hear that message, they'll think about it more and maybe it will um, have some form of impact on their daily lives and they'll think about it when, when they are in times of stress or whatnot to be able to just slow down a bit, so. Um, yeah. How about for you? Uh, what's like, what's next? What do you want to do? You know, you're a young man, Jeff, even though you're Gen X like me, um, I don't even see any gray in your hair. Um, and I did not see in that photo of you with the crazy hair either. So (laughs) what do you have plans for the, for the, you know, where you want to take this all? I'm sort of trying to formulate the plans for where this all goes. And some of that is having changed places. Um, Some of that is 
you know, what do I personally want to do versus what do I think uh, my students want to do? What are we capable of doing at Rowan compared to, you know, a Duke or a Penn? I mean, the, the possibilities are different depending on where you're at sometimes. And uh, so where I want to take all this is on the one hand, I am sort of interested in this. Um, are there signatures of mindfulness in the brain or, or whatever genetically? That's interesting. That's also extremely complicated to do. It's very costly to do. It takes a you know, years to get the grants to do that. Then you need the space and the lab facilities and all that. And everything goes toward that. And I've had years where I have done that. That's harder to do and more of your time is for, for teaching and kind of mentoring. I mean, those are two a little bit different values there. So it's, I haven't quite reconciled what's the right balance between those two. Um, and that's kind of just one thought with this whole kind of omics thing and mindfulness signatures. Another one is maybe trying to come back a little more. A lot of the projects I've been involved with over the years, and including now, but um, again, having switched places, I've lost it a little bit of this concept of mindfulness and medicine or mindfulness and health. Um, I really do kind of back to the original interest in health and medicine and being able to use that graduate degree in a basic science to collaborate with physicians and basic science labs that I think most psychologists, they don't have that background there. They can do it, but not as easily. So I think that's something in terms of where I want to go in this field or what kind of work do we want to do to bring psychology and medicine together for health through studying mindfulness. I think I want to come back to that because that sort of that piece hasn't been happening as much the last couple few years. Um, so I'm thinking about those directions uh, and then on a more practical level for the students or, you know, these universities, there's been you know, several suicides and all this stuff. There's kind of this mental health crisis and being a lab or a professor that um, for my own little lab that only has like eight of us, but maybe university wide to just make um, students aware that mindfulness is that innate natural quality that they have. And we also kind of say, all this stuff, it's an invitation, not an obligation. You're not, we're not trying to make everyone be mindful or whatever, but if you're curious, if you're open, curious about this, you've heard of it, is there a place, a lab or a professor you can kind of find out about, join a lab meeting, maybe there's a class on this or occasional mindfulness or yoga classes on campus that to support people that have heard of it but don't know where to go or an app's not enough, it's too isolating. Some of this is a social component, a connection component. I think that's also a big part of mental health or when things go south, people are feeling isolated and disconnected. So I think feeling more connected and together instead of alone is another part of that. That's a role of a professor or a lab or things you offer on campus. So those are some of the things I'm thinking in terms of where to go forward with all of this. Wow, um, that's a lot. And to think that I knew you when, Jeff, back when we were just like kids and I was blocking your shot on the basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that would still happen with that plant-based diet and that lean muscle mass and, and the breathing. You know, I'd stand no chance, man. I don't know about that, but I don't know if I can get off the ground anymore. But, um, well, what else do you want to reminisce about? You want to reminisce about the old days? Anything, anything pop in your head? Um, was I ever a jerk to you, Jeff, in college? No, no. I mean, I, I think my, my, uh, my delirious, um, you know, memories, one of them I was thinking of just earlier this afternoon was I, I think we were playing Rochester and it might've been my freshman year. I can't remember, but I seem to remember we're watching the, the game before us up in the stands. Um, and I think it was like a women's game. And I think Jay Rose and you were like, oh, girls like Bob Cousy or what is she like was a great ball handler. And then unfortunately we were so taken with her ball handling skills that, 
somebody that has a new podcast left the scouting report (laughs) in the stands Uh and we come out for our game and they have like every play you know, ferret it out. We can't run Jack Shenton. We go like where you're going to be, where I'm going to be, everything, Corey. And we just like got roasted, you know, because they do everything in, in our scouting reports. So oh, my gosh. My... I totally remember that. And I <laughs> and Coach totally just lambasted me for it. I, and I never left. And I heard about it that for years, I think. And I never left a scouting report in the stands. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's unreal. I remember that. And of course it was the, of course it was me leaving the scouting report in the stands. That, that was the reason for our loss. Yeah. That, that, I'm sure it was all because of that. <laughs> oh, what other memories, what other memories you got back in there? I remember too, like, I mean, your parents were frequent visitors to campus. Back yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember actually, so I know your dad passed a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I wonder, I was thinking about this when I was going to talk to you. He, after college, like he interviewed me for, I think he was writing a book on like urban basketball and, you know, sort of, he was like getting stories from kids like me who would like play, you know, on the playgrounds and then who um, uh, maybe went on to play in school and how that, how that experience of playing, um, you know, basketball or playing a sport it, in uh in a setting like that sort of influenced their life that was i still remember that interview um and i wonder if you know if anything came of that did he get did he have his thoughts down on paper it'd be so cool to see if he has if he had if you have anything yeah so he did it it never kind of came it never got published he submitted book proposals i think he had it out to a couple places i think he even finished a whole draft and you know uh we barely use paper anymore, but like those boxes of like a ream of paper, it's about, you know, three inches tall or whatever. So out in, I think in the garage or maybe in my mom, in the office back in the other room, it's there, you know, now I, for probably whatever emotional reasons or like, I, I never read it. You know, I read like maybe the first chapter. He came close to finishing. He talked to Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan, you know, high school kid, girls, boys, you know, all over the place. And me, I'm in the same book as Pops yeah, and Tim Duncan. Yeah, so that's all in there. And um, in fact, you know, Aaron and I have kind of said we should at some point go through that and see if we, if we can salvage it. Because it's basically a story. I think it was going to be called Hoop Dialogues, Conversations on Basketball Culture and Race or something. Like that was his big passion through himself playing and being an educator and seeing having kids that went to these places. Um, And so it is full of those stories that I think a lot of people would identify with that we've all gone through. Um, And I think the one sticking point with it was like, if you're interviewing all these people, there's kind of a whole legal formality with releases and all this stuff. and And I don't think he really did that part of it um yeah my lawyer was really on him you know. <laughs> yeah but yeah i appreciate you mentioned yeah i do kind of remember talking to him about that too and he was very you know passionate about it but just i think when they got down here he was going to try and finish it but well i don't i mean i wouldn't want to you know rush you into looking at that you know based on your personal experience but if there is a time that you went in and checked that out i'd be really curious to uh yeah. check it out too so yeah, maybe after the cold shower i'll be feeling different i'll be on a higher plane i you know uh you're gonna have to try that and see I have that. so, and, so you know, basically cold like you know it's like turn it on as cold as it'll go well i you know i'll do that but most of the time i'll start warm and then i'll kick it all the way back to cold. Uh, okay and then i'll do uh-huh. 
like, you know, one, sometimes one minute, sometimes two minutes, um, sometimes a little longer of fully cold. Huh. And I'll tell you, it sucks every single time. <laughs> it, it never gets easier. Really? Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. Uh, but if you, you know, it's actually, it's actually a breathing exercise, right? Because it oh, really yeah, forces yeah. you to like breathe right. deeply. Um, huh. and, and it's also like the whole theory behind it is it, it, um, it exposes your, it exposes you, your body and your mind to this sort of low grade level of pain and stress so that yeah. you can sort of, uh, be able to cope with that in your daily life better. And it also is great for your immune system and a whole bunch of things, man. One of the disciplines in naturopathy is hydrotherapy, hot, hot and cold. And then to some degree it's used in PT. Um, but I think even more so for kind of broader healing purposes and, and naturopathy. But and, and there's just some customary. Europe has a lot of the sauna and the ice and all that. A little bit in sports and PT, even more so in naturopathy. But another Larry Greeson story is um, so he was on sabbatical in Bergen, Norway in '88. So our whole family moved over there. I was in eighth grade at the time. And I remember, you know, we're going up to the Arctic Circle in Trondheim or Tromsø or whatever. And he's like, oh, Jeff. You know, you got to try the sauna first and then go jump in the fjord. There's like pieces of iceberg, you know, like floating around out there. <laughs> and he's coming back to the sauna to warm up. And then we're looking at him at the window, go jump in the fjord and come back. We have pictures of him. But yeah, so he was into the hydrotherapy. So genetically, I might have it in me, but I've never tried it. You got it in you. And also, that was a stellar impression. Of Hey everyone, that was Jeff Greeson. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, that was super enlightening for me. It was great to hear him talk about what it means to be mindful in our daily lives. A lot of great tips for practicing mindfulness, being more balanced in our lives. And now, I thought I would start a new segment on the podcast called The Creature feature. Now, what does this mean? Uh, I feel that all living creatures have their own special, unique traits that we can learn from and use in our daily lives uh, to guide us on our journeys. And at the very least, it's super fun to think about. And it really... uh, it harkens back to Jeff's comments about being mindful and attentive to your point in time and what is happening to you because uh, there are so many different living creatures around us and taking uh, stock of what they're doing um, uh, each day is kind of interesting. So let me set the stage for you for this creature feature. So every morning I walk my dog Denali um, here in Maine a couple of miles every morning just after sunrise and usually I walk him down a a road near our house that's a dirt road it's uh, flanked by forest on either side and uh, it's about a mile to a mile and a half long so As I've been walking down this road recently, almost every day, without fail, uh, I'm walking down the road and I'm not being mindful. I'm thinking of what I have to do in that given day. What am I doing for work? Uh, Or I'm 
I'm thinking about what has happened in the past, uh, you know, what happened yesterday, how am I going to fix it or uh, deal with it, um, how am I going to get this done. Inevitably, almost every day recently, as I've been walking down this dirt road, as I've looked down on the road, I've literally almost stepped on this creature multiple times in a given day and it is the very slow and deliberate slug so this is the creature feature for this episode the slug i'm not sure if any of you have thought about slugs uh in your daily lives but I've come across them so often that I have to have turned my attention to them because they're in the middle of the road. They're taking this major risk, crossing the middle of this dirt road, and they move at, of course, at a quote-unquote snail's pace. Uh, now, granted, there are only a handful of cars that go down this particular dirt road, but they are so slow and deliberate, and I almost step on them every single time. And what I've gleaned from this is, of course, uh, patience. You know, I'm always in a rush. I'm always thinking of what else I have to do today. I need to get this walk over. I need to get this done. I need to start focusing on what's happening today or what's happening this week. Meanwhile, that slug just keeps plugging along so slow, so deliberate. And it's getting to where it needs to be. And you wonder if this slug is being mindful in its moment of its journey. And the slug has really taught me to slow down. You know, to just slow down. Think about what is happening around you. Take stock of the nature, the scenery, the conversations, the people around you, and breathe and just know, have faith, have confidence that your path is the right one and you're getting there eventually. But you need to be patient because it's going to be a long journey. And so this is what the slug has taught me. And so that's why I wanted to feature the slug in today's creature feature. I hope you enjoyed it. And now am I crazy? Well, maybe. But you did listen all the way through. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed this. And I'm going to leave you with more of these main crickets as we head into fall. And I'll catch you next time on Delirious.